Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at myselfland.com. I had one more message I wanted to speak on the Home Life series, but I'm going to push it off till after Christmas um, because I wanted to take two weeks and I wanted to talk about the cross this Christmas. And I know that generally we talk about the cross at Easter, but I figure that since the cross is so central to our faith, it's actually okay for me to talk about it at Christmas or really any other time of the year, okay? Um, Because the cross is, is, the cross and the resurrection are right at, that's the whole reason we do everything. There's no church service or building or cell phone or any of the things we do without the cross and the resurrection. You know, for all the busyness and the stuff we're doing for God, I think it's so important for us often to just pull back and come back to the whole reason why we do all the stuff we do for Jesus. Amen? And, uh, and so on a simple level, there's, there's two things I want to in these next two weeks. And next week's is, is the one I'm really excited about because I, I really believe that once we get a, 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 a clear... Um, perspective of the cross. It radically changes the way we live uh, every day. And I think there is more meaning to the cross in terms of what it does for us in life now, not just getting us to heaven, than many Christians have really realized. And I think for long, and, and the thing is, this is true. So this isn't a false idea. The idea that because of the cross, we get to go to heaven. Well, yes. Okay. That, that, that is true. The, the, the idea of salvation. Um, but it is certainly not uh, nearly uh, full enough or big enough or grand enough vision of what Jesus was actually doing at the cross because the goal, Jesus' goal for you and I is not just to get us to heaven. In fact, we're not even going to spend eternity in heaven. Jesus is coming here to earth and we're going to live a physical life on earth in the image of God, okay? Really, really important. So the cross is not just this thing that happened so that our sins can be forgiven, so we go to heaven. Yes, that is true. That's right. That's core, core, core. I'm not saying that's bad. Obviously not. That's hugely, hugely core. There's just much more to it, and it's much more life-changing than just your sins are forgiven. It's actually life-changing in terms of the way we are able to live and should live in light of it. So, but to get to week two, I want to spend a little time in week one. And I want to ask some questions about the cross. And I want us, for some of you, some of the things I'm going to say are going to be super, super basic. Um, But I want us to make sure we have an appropriate picture of what happened at the cross and why Jesus had to die on the cross, uh, which will then open up for us, you know, a proper picture of God and and what he was uh, accomplishing on the cross. And, And so... We're going to ask some questions that take us just below the surface level. Now, it's important to understand that on the surface level, you, you actually don't, the cross is simple, okay? It's not that you have to have a deep, theologically correct understanding of everything all the time in order to be a proper Christian. That's absolutely not true. The fact of the matter is, the understanding that you have of the cross already is enough for you to be saved, I mean, just to know that Jesus died on the cross and that that somehow saves you from your sins is enough, okay? So at that level, I don't want to ever make the cross complicated. And we're we're gonna work very hard to not make the cross complicated, absolutely. To just know, so let me just put you at ease, to just know that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you had to put your faith in him is enough, okay? Now, having said that, uh, if you begin to dig into theology, and some of you will do this and some of you will not, and that's okay. God makes everybody different. When you begin, simple is enough, 
But there are many questions if you really begin to dig into the cross and you dig in, start to really dig into questions such as, like, how, how is it that a Jewish man, yes, God in the flesh, but how is it that a Jewish man dying on a cross 2,000 years ago somehow saves me? And again, there's the simple answers, but when you really begin to look at it, and how did God feel towards Jesus on the cross? And you can go, when you actually try to get down to the mechanics, you can start asking many, many questions, and things can actually get more complicated than most Christians realized. And we don't need to have answers to all those questions. In the end, I really believe there will be some mystery with the cross. However, I want to go in this first message just one level below simple. I don't want to go down into where we're asking all kinds of questions and we come out confused. I want to go just one level below. And I want to ask a couple of questions. I'm going to put them up on the, on the PowerPoint now. I want to ask just a couple of questions, okay? And uh, just so that we have a little bit of clarity and just make ourselves think just a little bit about the cross. So when Jesus died on the cross, I'm not asking for a show of hands, Okay, because I know I have, I have earned the lack of trust that you have for me by asking, tr uh, you know, trick questions at times from the stage. Okay, so I'm not asking for you, for you to show hands. Just look at the questions and in your mind, think about what you would answer to this. Understanding again that knowing right answers has nothing to do with whether or not you're saved. But when Jesus died on the cross, what did he save us from? Was he saving us from God's wrath? Was he saving us from the devil? Was he saving us from sin? Okay, so think about that for just a little bit. Really, there's more options I could put up there. I'm gonna put one more up there. Uh, or was it for all of the above? Okay, so just give yourself a shot within your mind. You don't have to be embarrassed that you got the answer wrong, okay? So now, uh, just to let you in on it, the answer biblically is number four, right? The answer biblically is number four. You can find passages that speak of the cross in terms of all of these. Okay, so right there we see there's different angles, there's different ways that we can view the cross. So one way is Jesus was saving us from God's wrath. Okay, we'll look at a few verses about that. One way we need to look at it, that, and all of these are true. So the cross is multifaceted, saving us from the devil's power, yes. You can find verses like that. And saving us from sin, yes. All of these are biblical. So I just want that to be really clear off the top, okay? All of these are biblical. All of these are true. All of these are important, okay? But now, I want to just talk about number one for a bit this message, and I want to look for what is the dominant storyline of the cross in the scripture. All of these are scriptural. And I want to talk about how we have to be careful. Many Christians, including myself in the past, have not been careful in how we preached aspect number one. And there's a danger for preachers and writers and Christian thinkers to take number one to places that actually aren't in the Bible. And some of you might not, you know, be aware of, you know, church history and things like that, but there's a whole stream of thought within Christian, there's a whole stream of, of, of churches 
that really focuses on number one. Many of them godly people love Jesus. Um, but there's a whole stream of thought and Christian thought that really emphasizes, number one, godly people. God has done many things through these people. But they emphasize it in a way that I would say is not biblical and actually not helpful in terms of our picture of who God is and what happened at the cross. And so, for example, I want to I share with you an influential sermon, one of the uh, most famous, even if you've never heard of it, messages that was ever preached in the last 300 years was a message preached uh, by a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. How many of you have ever heard? Now, this is not a trick question, okay? He was a real person. How many of you have ever heard of Jonathan Edwards, okay? Godly man, okay? Loved Jesus, man of prayer. Uh, God used him to spark revivals. Very passionate for God. Somewhere around 1750, I forget the exact date, but almost 300 years ago, there was a pastor in uh, Connecticut or Massachusetts, somewhere on the, on, the, uh, on the East Coast there in the United States. So about 300 years ago, a pastor on the East Coast had a church, and the pastor was frustrated with his church. He said, my people are worldly, they are obstinate, they are stubborn, and they won't repent. Okay? So imagine if I thought that about you guys. And to solve that problem, this preacher invited Jonathan Edwards to come and preach a message. And he said, my people are obstinate and they're worldly and they won't repent. I want you to preach a message that will essentially wake them up. And so Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon that, even if you've never heard of it, is, has influenced many preachers and churches since, whether you've heard of it or not. Uh, it's so famous that even though it's 300 years old, it's actually on YouTube. Obviously, it's not Jonathan Edwards preaching it on YouTube, but someone else reading his sermon on YouTube. And Jonathan Edwards preached a message called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And in this message, uh, he uses incredibly vivid imagery, very, very vivid imagery about the wrath of God against human beings, including, and I quote, uh, it's, well, essentially, I quote this, this imagery. I'm not word for word verbatim, but essentially the heart of the message is, is this picture of God and human beings are like spiders dangling over the fires of hell. And our wickedness is so bad that God's wrath, it is just like we're just barely at any moment he could drop us into hell. And he used very, very vivid imagery and pictures to show how God's wrath against humans was so terrifying and, and horrible. And he was such an effective preacher, and again, a godly man. Like, I'm not, this is not a criticism of Jonathan Edwards. You could go back, we go back and look at my, some of my messages in the past, and we could criticize those as well. Uh, my point is, just because this sermon became so influential, um, but he was so uh, good at what he did, and in this message, that people were actually moaning and crying out for salvation during the message. And many people got saved and it sparked a revival, which is awesome. I love how God uses, I personally am so thankful God uses imperfect preachers and people to advance his kingdom, aren't you? Amen. Okay. Now the question is, however, is that an appropriate picture of how God views humans? And is that an appropriate picture of what the Bible means when it talks about God's wrath. Because the picture that many people have taken from that is that what happened at the cross is here's God, kind of people are dangling by a thread over the fires of hell, and God is, his holiness 
is so enraged against the sinfulness of man, and thankfully Jesus stepped in between us and God and took that wrath upon himself. Now again, there's obviously there is a real core of truth there. The idea that Jesus took our just penalty is 100% true. But is the picture biblical? Is the picture of God dangling us over the fire and Jesus getting in the way of that wrath and literally God taking out his wrath against humans on Jesus, is that a biblical picture? And that's what I want to explore a little bit because what I really care about is what does the Bible actually say? Now, first of all, a couple of passages just to show that there are passages which certainly talk about the cross in light of God's wrath. We'll just look at those very briefly. Uh, first of all, John 3.36, this is in red letters. Jesus says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So clearly, something about believing in Jesus, obviously, and what happened at the cross saves us from God's wrath. Now, the interesting thing is we, and this we'll do a little bit next week, we really have to define a little bit what God's wrath is, don't we? When he, they talk about God's wrath, are we talking about an emotional rage, God hanging people over a fire that he can hardly wait to punish them? What is God's wrath? Well, we'll look at that a little bit next week. But whatever the case is, certainly he hates sin. And certainly the wrath of God would be a terrifying, terrible thing. Okay? And Jesus' death on the cross certainly saves us from it. That is certainly true. Also, we see in Romans 5, verse 9, where Paul says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, speaking of the crucifixion, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Okay? So, yes, Jesus' death on the cross saves us from the wrath of God. But is that the dominant picture that the gospel writers and the New Testament writers, when they talk about the cross, when they paint for us the story of the cross, is the, is the feeling and picture we are supposed to have, a picture of God raging against sinful humans and Jesus taking his rage on our behalf? And I would say very clearly and overwhelmingly, the scripture says no. There is, Jesus did take our just penalty and he did save us from God's wrath, his judgment on the last day, but that is not the dominant picture of scripture about the cross. And I'll just show you a couple of verses, but then we'll actually just jump into the gospels and look at a whole bunch of things. But just for a couple of verses, John 3, 16 to 17, Jesus says this, also in red letters, for God so what the world? God so loved the world. Was God dangling the earth and human beings were a fire. He can just hardly hold himself back because of his emotional rage against sinful human beings. And that is not the picture. Wrath against sin is certainly part of it. And God's holiness is certainly part of it. But the reason for the cross is that God loved the world. Amen. Okay. And it's actually really important when we think of the Trinity, when we begin to try to split up the Trinity, yes, there's three persons in the Trinity and yes, they're one. This idea that God was mad and Jesus took God's anger that Jesus was loving is actually doesn't work because Jesus is God. Yes, somehow he's the son and God's the father. And yes, somehow Jesus actually just is God in the flesh. But it's not just God's wrathful and Jesus is loving. God loved the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And we see this very thing in 1 John as well. I could show you many passages. We don't have time. We could spend hours looking at these. But 1 John 4, starting in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And we keep going. By the way, isn't that amazing? Can we never please take God for granted? You know how many people are blindly in other religions and faiths that teach about gods that are anything but loving? Verse 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son to the world so that we might live through him. That's the Christmas message. Why did God take on flesh in Jesus? Because he loves us. And now he talks about the cross. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The dominant story the, what, that the early church and the disciples took to the world was look to the cross and see God's love. Now, what is God's attitude? What is the picture we should have of God's attitude? Again, uh, is the attitude of God one of, I can't stand sinful people, but thankfully Jesus got in the way of my wrath. I don't. What is God's attitude towards sinners? And I want to go to the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' manifesto for the Christian life. And you say, well, what does that have to do with God's heart? Well, let's just look at it. And let's just look at the core, what Jesus says, his manifesto for how we as followers of Christ are supposed to live. And let's see what we can learn about God's heart in the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the, one of the central things that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 43, he says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And again, what human faith or religion teaches things like this? But my question to you is, does God follow his own commands? Does God follow his own commands? Is this sort of a random command where God says, I don't love my enemies, but you need to love your enemies. Is this just a command he made up because he likes it? Or does this command actually flow out of who God is? And I have to believe that this flows out of who God is. And when we go to the next verse, you're going to see that that's actually the reason for this command. Jesus says, you want to know why you're supposed to love your enemies and pray and bless those who persecute you? Here's why. So that you may be sons, we could say daughters or children, of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, the reason that the core of the Christian life is to be love your enemies and bless and pray for those who persecute you is because you're children of God in heaven. Now, here's the thing about children. Children, when you have a genetic relationship... Children, you have, a, you have a resemblance, right? Children uh, will have a resemblance to their parents. This last week, uh, someone on our family chat began, you know, spreading around pictures of myself and my siblings when we were kids. And uh, somehow those, another one of my siblings, this one I know who it is, began spreading those pictures into people on staff. 
and I'm working through forgiveness. But anyway, uh, as with any... Uh, as with any childhood pictures, some are very cute, some are less cute, and some are embarrassing, right? Isn't that true? Um, but one of the things, as you look at many of these pictures, uh, one of the things that comes through very clear is my son Charlie, who is 11 years old now, looks identical to what I looked like when I was his age. Like, it's like spitting image in picture after picture after picture. In fact, it's so much that I, we were looking at these things and laughing uh, with our kids. And at one point, I looked at Charlie and I said, I just want to ask for your forgiveness because this is how you will look when you're 40. <laughs> There's a resemblance, right? There's a resemblance. So that you may be children of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, the reason you're supposed to love your enemies and pray and bless those who persecute you is because you're supposed to have resemblance to your Father in heaven. That's what he does. And Jesus goes on to make this even more clear. He says this in verses 46 and 48. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You know why Jesus asks us to love our enemies? Because... He loves his enemies. You want to know why Jesus asks us to bless those who hurt us and hate us? Because he loves those who persecute him and hate him. So back to the question, did Jesus save us from God's wrath? He absolutely did. We need to examine more what God's wrath is. And certainly there is a final judgment when all of those who persist in resisting Jesus will finally be judged and cut off from the presence of the Lord, no question. And Jesus' death saves us from that. But is the picture of what happened at the cross a picture of God being so enraged with sinners and then Jesus gets in the way and God takes out his wrath on Jesus? And the answer is no. And uh, I actually read this last week. There's actually, because out of this, this whole idea, Jesus did save us from the just penalty of our sins. Jesus does save us from final judgment on judgment day. In that sense, he saves us from God's wrath. There's no question. And God hates sin, no question. But God loves sinners. But some pastors have taken, and I'm talking about very popular ones. I'm not talking about fringe ones. We're talking about incredibly influential pastors with many, many books. I read one this, this week, a guy who has written, written many books, has tons and tons of influence, and he actually said this. He takes the verse that, you know, Jesus saves us from God's wrath, and he actually says this. He says, God killed Jesus. And there's this picture that on the cross, it was God taking out his wrath on Jesus, that God actually was wrathful at Jesus so he wouldn't have to be wrathful at us. And again, it paints this picture which thinkers outside of the church, non-Christian thinkers, have taken. I know, again, why preachers are saying this. They're not trying to be bad, obviously. They're, they're trying to make things logical. If Jesus saved us from God's wrath, then obviously God must have been wrathful at Jesus. But many thinkers outside the church have rightfully questioned, that sounds more like child abuse than something we want to honor. So did God actually kill? So there's this whole stream of thought, and it comes with a certain picture. Did God, when we, you know, at the set-free retreat, and you're watching the soldiers beating Jesus, are we to see God in that moment as being with the soldiers 
to rage on Jesus? Or was God's heart hurting with Jesus at that time? And it's very easy for preachers to take a verse, Jesus saved us from God's wrath, and then go the next step, that means God killed Jesus. But actually, nowhere in the scripture does it say that God was mad at Jesus or that God killed Jesus. In fact, the disciples, when they preached the gospel immediately after the resurrection, they had a very clear answer for who killed Jesus, and it wasn't God. Acts chapter 3, in the temple, Peter says this, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our forefathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. And then verse 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed. He's speaking to the Jewish leaders. And of course, if there were Roman soldiers there, he would be speaking to them. He said, God didn't kill Jesus. You killed Jesus, wicked, evil people. When they put nails into Jesus's hands, that was a wicked, terrible thing to do. And God does not tempt people to sin. When they whipped and beat an innocent man, that was a wicked, evil thing for them to do. And God did not tempt them to do that. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. God's part in all this was to turn it for good, to raise him up. Now you say, well, wasn't it always part of God's plan for Jesus to die? And the answer is absolutely yes. Absolutely yes, God knew. And absolutely yes, it had to happen in order for us to be saved. But that is very different from saying that God did it. What happened at the crucifixion is God took on flesh and he came down to an earth full of terrible people and he gave those people a message of life. And then, knowing how they would respond, he allowed them to kill him. He took the full brunt. We'll look a little bit more at this next week because Paul has some really profound things to say about this. He took the full brunt of evil on himself and then took that very act of evil and overcame evil through that act of evil and offered salvation to the very people who killed him. Amen. So there's lots of verses, you know, Romans 8.32, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. It doesn't, it's not that God killed his son, he gave him up for us all. He came to earth knowing what needed to be done and knowing that evil people would do it. And then he took it on himself and used it for forgiveness. You wanna know what's a great parallel story in the Bible? is the story of Joseph. When Joseph's brothers threw Joseph into the pit and sold him into slavery, was God happy about that? Was God tempting the brothers? Was God whispering in Judah's ear, you should throw your younger brother into the pit? Absolutely not. You want what the book of James says? God never tempts anyone to sin. When Joseph was in the pit and when Joseph was sent into slavery. You don't think Joseph, I mean, when Joseph must have cried out in terror, in despair, in hopelessness, do you think when Joseph was crying out all those years in slavery and on his way into bondage, you don't think God's heart ached with Joseph in his bondage? You don't, you don't think when Joseph was crying terrified what's going to happen to me next, alone, never thinks he's going to see his country again. You don't think, you, you think God was sitting there and going, this was such a great idea I had. No, no, no. It's terrible. Now, did God know it would happen? The glory of God is this. Not that he stops every bad thing from happening. This is the glory of God, but that he can take those terrible things 
and turn them for good. He takes the very thing that the brothers do, which is evil and wicked. Let me just say that again. To sell your brother into slavery is a wicked, awful, horrible, terrible thing to do. But he takes that very thing they've done and they deserve to be punished severely for what they've done. But this is what God does. He takes the very thing they do, takes that very thing to get Joseph to Egypt, to make him second in command, to be the means of salvation for the very men who did the act. And in the end, he uses the wicked act and gives them forgiveness and gives them life. That is actually the glory of God. The glory of God is so much more than just the grandeur and the majesty and the power. That's all God's glory too. But the glory of God is that he is a God who loves his enemies and blesses those who persecute him. He actually takes the very men who are nailing him to a cross and that act of pure evil, he turns back on its head and uses that act of evil as the act by which he conquers evil once and for all. Bringing new meaning to the statement uh, where the New Testament writers tell us never to return evil for evil, but to return good for evil. The reason we're to return good instead of evil is because that is what Jesus does and that is what Jesus is like. And there's lots of other passages we could look at. Actually, I have Genesis uh, 50 here. I'd love to go to Mark 12, but we just, we just don't have time to go to all of them. But Genesis 50, but Joseph said to them, look at what Joseph talks about God, but Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant evil, but God meant it for good. And then we see Jesus' heart on the cross, Luke 23. Look at Jesus' heart on the cross. And when they had come to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They hadn't even asked for forgiveness yet. They were still doing it to him. My goodness, that's the God we serve? That's the one we are to resemble. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's incredible. You know why I think this is so important? You say, why does this, all this matter? Because whatever you believe about some of these details, you're saved. Like, if you just believe Jesus died on the cross for sins, you're saved. Totally. I just really believe that our picture of God really matters. Because it's something that wise theologians have said for many centuries, and that is this. People tend to become like what they worship. Isn't that true? People tend to become like what they worship. And if your picture of God is not the appropriate one that the Bible paints for us, a God who overflows with forgiveness, how are you ever going to live out the Sermon on the Mount? We're supposed to mirror God by how? By being angry at our enemies, by being angry at sin, we're supposed to be holy and we're supposed to hate sin, but we are absolutely supposed to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us because that's how God is. That's the reflection. So at the cross, what was happening? God took on flesh, concentrating, well, we'll look at this a little bit next week, but co literally concentrating the forces of evil onto himself and then defeating them by dying and rising again. So back to our original question. What did Jesus save us from on the cross? Yes, God's wrath, that final judgment. The devil and the forces of darkness, sin and evil. Now my question is, what's the main one? What's the main storyline 
of the Gospels. See, one of, one of my issues with, with a lot of this is, as Christians, what we love to do for theology is take statements out of Paul and then read them back into the Gospels. It's like we think the Gospels are stories and Paul is theology. It's all theology. And if you don't take, like the stories as a whole, they don't give you the same snippets that are easy to quote, but the stories are deeply, deeply, deeply theological. So what do the stories of the Gospels paint for us about what happened at the cross, about what God was doing to Jesus, about what Jesus himself thought his role was. If Jesus was here to answer that question, he would say yes to all three. But what would be the primary one that the Gospels would say, this is the one that Jesus was overcoming at the cross? And we'd have to read all four of them to get, and that's why it's sometimes hard to do, because you can't just pull out one sentence. But let's look at a couple of passages, and let's see what Jesus' self-understanding about what he was doing at the cross was, and a picture that the, all four Gospels paint for us, one central picture of the cross that many of us miss because it's in a story. But let's start with John chapter 10. And what is Jesus, in John chapter 10, Jesus uses a parable of the good shepherd to talk about his death. And what does Jesus see himself as dying for in this parable? Well, let's read it. I am the good shepherd, he says. So first of all, Jesus Paints himself, I'm the good shepherd, okay? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, okay? So he's prophesying ahead to his death. I'm gonna die. Now what in this parable is he dying to protect the sheep from? Is he dying to protect the sheep from a bigger shepherd? Is he dying to protect the sheep from the owner of the sheep? What is he dying to protect the sheep from? Let's keep reading. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Who is the good shepherd laying down his life to protect the sheep from? A wolf, okay? Some evil presence power personality. And for sure, the wolf is not God the Father, because of what we read next. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and lay down my life for the sheep. Three characters. We've got the good shepherd, we've got the Father, and we've got a wolf. I want you to notice the picture here is not, first of all, can we just comment on the fact that that Jesus calling God Father is deeply significant and theological. That is deeply significant. He calls him Father. The picture of God that Jesus has is of a protective, loving figure. Not a Santa Claus, not easy on sin, nothing of that, absolutely not. But a protective and loving figure. The Father loves the, the, the shepherd. The Father loves the Son. And the father is not the one. The son is not getting in the way of the father. Father, don't beat the sheep. The father loves the son, and the son is giving his life to protect the sheep from a wolf. <coughs> An evil power and presence personality. Verse 17, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge 
I've received from my Father. Now, someone might object. Okay, well, that's just one picture. Well, yeah, it is just one. We can look at other passages as well. But there's no question, Jesus, in his self-understanding, and he's God, so he understands the cross the best, certainly did not see himself as trying to keep God from killing all the people. He sees God as the loving father and they love the sheep and he's protecting the sheep from a wolf. But I want to now, so much bigger than just a verse you can quote, let's just talk about the gospels, these four stories. Four stories we get that tell us the story of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. And the climax of all four is the crucifixion and the resurrection. That's the climax of all four. And in all four stories, the crucifixion and the resurrection center on a particular event in a calendar. It does not happen on a random day. In all four gospels, the crucifixion and the resurrection take place around what? Passover. And in all four gospels, an important part of the lead up to this climax is what we call the Last Supper, but the disciples in Jesus just called it the Passover Supper, where Jesus interprets what he is about to do through the Passover. And the Passover bread, take this whenever you eat it in remembrance of me. And the Passover drink, this is the blood of the new covenant. Drink it in remembrance of me. So, all of it centered Jesus. So in the Gospels, we actually have not, not four different kind of confusing storylines. We have one storyline for the cross, one primary one. Again, what I said to be in the message is so true. There's different passages and different ways of looking at the cross and different things that happen there. But if you want to know what is the dominant one the Gospel writers want us to see, is that the crucifixion and the resurrection are to be viewed through the Passover. That the, that the crucifixion and the resurrection are in some ways the new Passover, the new Exodus. Now, what was the first Passover all about? God rescued the Israelites from bondage. Now, did God re have to rescue the Israelites from God? To whom were the Israelites in bondage to? Pharaoh, an evil power who had no right. He didn't own them but he had, he had overpowered them and he enslaved them and he was too strong. And next week we'll look at more. By the way, there's all kinds of parallels between the Gospels and the Exodus. For example, Exodus chapter one, the Exodus story starts with what? Pharaoh trying to kill all the baby boys. What does the Gospel story start with? Herod trying to kill all the baby boys. The crucifixion and the resurrection are the new Passover, the new Exodus, the bigger one. The first one pointed to the second one. So when Jesus is on the cross, the dominant, yes, is he delivering us from God's wrath and paying the just penalty for our sins? 100%. I never want to take that down. That, that is not, but when we think of that wrath, are we thinking of God, is our interpretation of wrath and emotional rage, God is dangling human beings over? Or is the dominant storyline that we were enslaved to the evil powers of sin and death and the devil, the wolf, and Jesus took the full brunt of their attack because of the Father's love and his love and overcame the powers of evil 
And the evidence that he overcame them is that death couldn't hold him down and he came back to life. And this has many, 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 many implications for how we are to live now today already. But let me finish with one last passage. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were before the cross, dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. You were in bondage. Absolute bondage before the cross. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, not only were you in bondage to death and sin, you were in bondage to this prince of the power of the air, this awful, powerful, dark, spiritual being, you know, Satan. Three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, I want you to notice here, being rich in what? Mercy. Rich in emotional anger? No. Does he hate sin? Yes. Does God have wrath? Yes. At the final judgment, will people who persist in rebelling him be finally cut off from him? Yes, absolutely, and judged. And Jesus' death saves us from that. But what is the emotion? What is the dominant storyline emotion of God's heart towards sinners? He loves. He's rich in mercy. That's why he did this. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So it's not, he didn't just love us after we accepted Jesus. He loves before. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him somehow. And this again, we'll look at, because Paul has some very profound things to say about this in Romans. But how did God defeat sin at the cross? But somehow we were identified with Jesus in his human flesh when he died. And somehow we were identified with him when he rose. So somehow when he rose, we got raised too. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're no longer in bondage to the spiritual forces of darkness. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. Now word saved is not, it's not just for by grace you have become a Christian. You've been saved. Saved from something. What were you saved from? The trespasses and sins and the prince of the power of the air. You've been saved from the forces of darkness and death. You've been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So that no one can boast. Next week, I want to look at how this radically changes even our mission on earth. Not radically changes it from anything that we know to be in the Bible, but radically different from the way I think many of us live our lives. But for now, can we just appreciate the fact that we serve a God who is rich in mercy and has delivered us from the powers of darkness? And may we never get bored of that message as Christians. Would you just bow your heads with me and close your eyes? And can we just thank him? Lord Jesus, I thank you for your mercy that you revealed to us on the cross and for the mercy of the Father who loves us all deeply. You love your enemies and we here who have given our lives to you are not enemies. So how much do you love us? And maybe you're here today and you used to follow Jesus or maybe you've never followed Jesus before. But this is a God who loves his enemies and he loves those who don't know him or even who have resisted him. 
and maybe you'd like to come in to his family as well. Maybe you'd like to receive his love. You know how simple it is? It's as simple as saying this, Lord Jesus, I wanna be part of your family. Lord Jesus, help us as we worship now to experience your love in fresh ways. Bring in us a spirit of repentance. You've been so good to us and our proper response to you is to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.